Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Well, welcome, King's Church. So glad you have joined us today. Wherever you are, if you're watching online, we welcome you wherever you are watching from with whoever you're watching with. We welcome everybody in PEI in Charlottetown. We welcome everybody in Halifax, Nova Scotia, everybody on the west side of St. John, everybody at the Valley location today. We are glad that you have joined us. Hey, really quick, I want to encourage you as we're nine months into this pandemic, uh, just, just really glad for the way that so many of you are fighting to continue to make, you know, church a priority. Even if that means not being able to get out to a physical location, you know that we live not by, uh, you know, food alone, but by every word that comes, not by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And so just glad that you're here today. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a 12-point sermon? You're about to. Yes. And I promise you, no, the view count is plummeting. The view count is plummeting right now on Facebook. No, just stay with me. We're going to be our normal time today. In fact, might even be a little quicker. But I want to just jump right in. And we're going we're gonna to just jump into this, answer a question. I want to answer a question. And here it is. The question is, what does it look like to live in the light of King Jesus' now and coming kingdom? It's a question I want to ask, and I've got 12 attributes, and we're going to fly through these things to kind of describe what I believe it's supposed to look like to see God's kingdom and his government established on earth as it is in heaven. Now, 12 is not just some arbitrary number. In fact, 12 is the number of God's perfect government in the Bible. And so I have an literary masterpiece for you we'll get to in just a minute, where I have 12 descriptions, 12 attributes of the way I believe the church, the people of God, are supposed to express and bring the government, the rule, and reign of King Jesus on earth as it is is in heaven. But before we do that, it's important to catch everybody up in our journey through the book of Revelation. If you're just joining us, we have for the last several months now, we took a break in the summer, but we have been going through a journey through the book of Revelation, this often confusing and mysterious book. We have been studying it and doing the deep dive, and we have been learning a whole lot. So let me catch you up really quick. Here's the crash course. The book of Revelation is actually called the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The word apocalypse actually means what? Unveiling. Yes, it means to actually remove a barrier so that we can see. And that's really the purpose of the book of Revelation, that we would have an apocalypse, an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as we see Jesus Christ, it's going to illuminate everything else. And so we've learned that the book of Revelation establishes a premise. And the premise is this, that there is more going on in this world and in your life and around you than meets the eye. And that there are things that are at play and at work that are beyond the surface, beyond the veil of your regular perception. And the book of Revelation gives us this this imagery to help us see beyond our five senses. And to see some things that God says are very real that you might be missing. And so we've been looking at this book, this book that calls us to look. 
That is the central invitation of the book of Revelation. It is actually to see, to look. And so we have indeed seen some things. First and foremost, and I, I got some messages just this past week, so many of you have been so grateful for the fact that we have discovered that the book of Revelation is actually true to its name. And in fact, it's true to the reason John said he gave it, to give us grace and peace. The book of Revelation was never meant to cause terror or confusion. In fact, it was for clarification and empowerment. And we've been finding that to be true as we've been studying. Now, there are a few major themes that we've seen so far. Now, just hang with me because we're going to get to where we're going in just a minute. But I want you to catch the big ideas that we've seen in the book of Revelation. The first thing is this. Here's the first major revelation we get in the book. Through all the imagery and all the kind of the, the stuff that we've had to unpack, here's the big idea. This is the biggest idea, and that is this. There is a throne at the center of the universe. And on the throne is seated not the devil, not sin, not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not Justin Trudeau, not coronavirus, not cancer. On the throne of the universe, there is an all-powerful, all-knowing lamb whose name is Jesus. That is the big central idea in the book of Revelation. It wants you to see, if you, if you see nothing else, know this, Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne and Jesus knows everything, is all powerful and is chosen to demonstrate his power and his knowledge by laying his life down for everybody. That is the central message of the book of Revelation. We've learned something else. We saw this last week that, that Jesus, the lamb, he will come again and he will bring with him heaven, utopia, the thing that we all long for, where everything is made right and everything is set to be pure and set to be eternal. He's going to bring that with him. We learned about the fifth horse last week. We learned that the church are the people of the fifth horse. We're riding the fifth horse all the way to the bank, putting all our money and all of our lives on the horse that Jesus rides bringing eternal life. Can I get an amen? And then we found out this, that before his coming, before he comes again, the second advent, that God is going to flush out sin, Satan, death, and hell through what is known as the great tribulation. That God is going to unfold this process. And we, we saw it kind of as an, in an image with this scroll and seven seals. That as these seals get broken, the story unfolds and the process begins where God presses in. And we start to see all the powers of evil flaring up. And we see people either choosing to kind of be non-repentant. And we see waves of people turning back to God. And we see this through chapter 6 all the way to nine. And we, let, we ended off there last week. We ended off at the end of chapter 6 where we saw the sixth seal being opened. And it got really intense to where it says that the kings of the earth and the powers of the earth and people everywhere calling out to the mountains and the rocks saying, Fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Now that's where we ended off last week on this question, who can withstand it? And we're going to actually unpack the answer to that because John unpacks the answer to that in chapter 7. We find out that the people of the Lamb can withstand it. 
And here's what we find out. We're going to look at this over the next few weeks. We're going to unpack a vision of the people of the Lamb, a vision of the church, heaven's vision of the church. But here's another major theme you need to know about the book of Revelation. And that is this, that the redeemed people of the Lamb are sealed and secure through it all. Now, I'm not suggesting whether or not we we go through hardships or trials. I believe the answer to that is yes. But one thing the book of Revelation makes abundantly clear is no tribulation, no devil, no sin, no sickness, no death can take us out of the hand of the Almighty. And so we find that out to be true in the book of Revelation. Then one final major implication that is so important that we see, and that is this, that the Lamb himself, Jesus is ultimately going to establish his government forever and ever. And that as tribulation unfolds, we find he comes back and he establishes his kingdom and government fully. And that's what the end of the story tells us in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. It tells us that John saw a new heaven and a new earth. Look at this. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It was gone. Sin, gone. Satan, gone. Death, gone. Persecution, gone. Injustice, gone. Viruses, gone. Uh, all, the, all the rotten things of life, the hardships of life, all gone. And there was no longer any sea. The sea represents chaos. God has brought his order on the earth. And then it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as beautiful, beautifully dressed as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, there's that invitation again. Look, see, it wants you to envision this. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the end of the story. Hallelujah. Amen? And this is, the, this is the central message that Jesus' kingdom will ultimately reign forever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. You know that one? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! No, no, anyway. So, that's a big recap. So, so, the, so the question I want to ask today, and just I'm going to plow through this, but I think it's important that we kind of pause here before we go any further. Because we need to know if you've interpreted these, this message of revelation the proper way. And here's the question I want to ask. Now what? Or so what? What do we do with these themes? What do we do with the fact that Jesus is on the throne? What do we do with the fact that he's coming again? He's going to establish his kingdom fully. How do we interpret that? How do we apply that to our lives? What does it look like to live in the light of King Jesus' now and coming kingdom? This is the question I want us to ask ourselves. How do we live in light of this proclamation about the Lamb and his ultimate kingdom? Now, before we jump in, I've got, I've got told you, I've got 12 pictures of the way I believe the kingdom is supposed to come through the people of God. Before I get to that, I want to describe to you what it's not. Sometimes we need to know what something isn't before we can figure out what it is. Am I right? And so here, here's a couple misinterpretations of the apocalypse. And the first is this. Uh, I've created the word. The first misapplication of the book of Revelation and, the, and the, the thing that it's telling us to be true. The first misapplication is this. Christians who choose in light of this truth to, to be chilling and culting. Culting is a word I'm creating. It's, it's a thing that we do. It's, it's, it's 
congregating with like-minded people in our own little club, disassembled and disassociated from the world. And it comes with this kind of mentality of because of the, the story of Jesus and the truth of Revelation, I just get to escape the world. That this means I'm just going to back off and believe what I got to believe and pray the prayers I got to pray, do the things I got to do and keep my ticket for heaven and I'm going to be just fine. This is, the, this is the first and probably the most common way the most people misinterpret the gospel and specifically what Revelation tells us. It, we, we see it as an actual opportunity to disengage and escape the world. And what happens is it actually leaves a lack of witness and it causes disconnection and a form of escapism. Have you ever met a Christian that you really couldn't tell they're a Christian other than the fact that they say they're a Christian? That's rooted in the fact that you think that Christianity is just about believing the right thing so that you go to heaven someday. That is actually contrary to what Jesus taught and contrary to what Revelation tries to get us. It reminded me of one of my old shows, Seinfeld. Anybody remember Seinfeld? I'm dating myself. Does anybody remember Elaine's boyfriend, David Putty? David Putty, he was a great character, super funny, super like just stoic and stale and monotone. But one episode comes out where Elaine finds out that David's a Christian. So she comes up and she sort of grills him and says, so you're all religious, are you? And he goes, I try. And then she says, okay, well, is it a problem that I'm not religious? To which he responds, not for me. And, <laughs> and she says, why is that not a problem? And, and he says, because I'm not the one going to hell. Let's go get supper. And then he tries to get her to steal the neighbor's paper because he's like, well, I don't want to go to hell. You please do it. And, it. and it makes us laugh a little bit, but this is kind of the mentality that actually permeates a lot of us. That we think, you know what, Christianity is just about believing the right things and that when I die, I'm saved by grace, so I'm going to go to heaven someday. And that is missing the point. That is bad theology and bad eschatology. What's eschatology? It's your vision of how things end. This is the wrong way to interpret the scripture and the wrong way to interpret the Bible. Jesus actually isn't interested in the destruction of all things. Read the book. He restores all things. And if you read tribulation, the tribulation is a last stitch effort to call everybody to reconciliation. So Jesus very much cares if people are going to hell. Jesus very much cares that the earth be restored. This is total opposite mentality of what the scripture teaches us. Here, here's how I would contextualize it. Jesus has commissioned the church to establish his kingdom here and now. Amen? This is actually, he calls us to engage the world. That this faith... The fact that we believe there is a lamb on the throne who is benevolent and gracious and almighty, this actually calls us to, to go in that belief. The fact that we believe that he's coming again to rid the world of sin and death, that calls us to engage the world. The fact that we believe that God is going to restore all things should change how we see the planet. It should change how we see communities. We need to be agents of restoration. God is sending us into the world, not calling us to escape it. So important. Look what Jesus said. He was praying at the Last Supper. And he's praying to God, but he's talking to his disciples at the same time, talking to us. Look what he says. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now look what he says. As you sent me to escape the world. It's not what it says, is it? 
as you, sent, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We are sent as Jesus was sent. We are called to engage it. Look what Jesus said. This is the last thing he said before he ascended to heaven. He said to the disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is a lamb, an all-knowing, all-powerful lamb on the throne. This is what he's saying. Then he says, therefore, that's the key word, right? In light of the fact that I am on the throne, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Does that sound like hands off? Does that sound like, well, we're just going to congregate in our little Christian club and not, you know, let the world go to hell and someday, you know, God's going to rapture us off into the sky and we're just going to leave this, you know, one glad morning when this life is over. Remember that one? I'll fly away. Bad theology. Bad eschatology. God has actually called us to engage the world, to bring heaven to earth. The life of the kingdom is less about waiting around for Jesus and much more about working with him. Let me say that again. The life of the kingdom is less about waiting for Jesus and more about working with him. That's what the life of the kingdom is really all about. And so we misapply revelation. We misapply the gospel first and foremost by disengagement. The second common misapplication, and we're seeing this big time right now and kind of the political tumult that's happening, is Christians crusading and coercing looking to almost enslave the world or impress upon the world our value system from this kind of top down. We need to lobby. We need to get so-and-so elected. We need to do these things and therefore the kingdom's gonna come on earth as it is in heaven. They put the make in make disciples. It's kind of pressing our culture on people, impressing them and, and, and causing them to kind of submit to how we think God wants things to be. But the problem is we lose our witness. And it causes hostility and division. What did we learn about conquest last week, if you were paying attention? Conquest, human conquest always leads to division and oppression. And the same is true for good-intended Christians who are trying to establish the kingdom of God through the wrong means. It's like I was thinking about it like this, another movie reference. I'm also dating myself. Nacho Libre, anyone? No, a little, more, a little more obscure. I would play these for you, but again, internet, and we're not allowed, and I want you to be able to see the rest of this message, so you're going to have to get me reenacting this great scene for you. But Nacho is about to go in his tag team wrestling match, and he's gonna, they're going to face Satan's cavemen. And so he says to his, to his buddy, uh, Esquilita, he says, you know what, I'm very concerned about your salvation and stuff. And his friend says, hey, why are you always riding me? Just because I believe in science and stuff. And then Nacho Libre says, well, tonight we are facing Satan's caveman. And I think it'd be a very good idea as he sneaks up behind him and smashes his face down into the bucket that you would praise the Lord. And he baptizes him without his permission. It's amazing. And he says, felicidades. And anyway, that's my, my best reenactment of this. But it's, again, it's comical but a lot of us almost like we go around just trying to force people into the kingdom. So ramming tracks down their throat or, you know, kids coming to, to trick or treat. And you're like, I don't, you know, rebuking their skeleton costume at the door. Like, like this is not what Jesus had in mind. This is not how the kingdom is supposed to come. Jesus established his kingdom differently. He established his kingdom primarily from the bottom up. Notice, if Jesus came, if he, if he wanted to rule and reign the way the world does, he would have come and run for office. 
He would have been born in a palace, not in a, not in a, in a manger. Instead, he came up because his design is to actually impress on people's hearts, to take hold of people's hearts. And then as it, as it takes root in people's hearts, it captures their minds, and then it finds its way through their bodies and into their lives and into their families. And then the kingdom goes from families to communities and from communities to regions and from regions to nations and from nations to the world. That's how the government of King Jesus was meant to be established. You can't legislate the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus died. It's because he gave us the law. We failed. So this is why the Bible says that God's spirit wants to give us a heart of flesh, to put his heart in our chests. That's how the kingdom was meant to come. Jesus established his king differently. Look what he says. His disciples, literally the night that he was betrayed and was heading for the cross, they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, like the, like the least. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I, I'm different, he's saying. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus brings his government through sacrifice and service, through selflessness, humility, and love. If God wanted to flex on us, he would have done that. Instead, he died for us. And that's, what he, that's how he establishes his kingdom. This, this kind of stood out to me today. We, we, we looked at this passage last week about the, the promise in Isaiah 9 where God's going to establish his kingdom and his reign and his government forever and ever. Look at the promise. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. Does that sound like any government that you know? Doesn't the government stand on our shoulders? Don't, doesn't, isn't that how it worked in the, in, in the world? But in Jesus's world, it's upside down, it's bottom up. He holds things up, he serves us. And he calls us to serve the world. The way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom, it's not enforced on us, it's expanded in us and through us, through voluntary submission. His kingdom is not of this world and it's not like this world. Let me just say this, in light of all the elections and all the stuff going on in the US and in Canada and all the politics and the craziness, let me remind you that God's kingdom is not a democracy. His kingdom is not an oligarchy. His kingdom is not a republic or a federation. His kingdom is not even a monarchy, it's a theocracy. There is a king and we serve him as he has served us. That is how he came to rule. Okay, I've got a few minutes left, but I think we've done some work on kind of correcting misapplications of the book of Revelation. If you haven't heard me, the book of Revelation calls us in the here and now to establish God's kingdom and government right here, right now, through our lives. It is not something we mortgage off for someday in the future. It is not something we think that's gonna matter someday else. It matters now. God is looking for Christians to establish his rule and reign right here, right now. Amen? So let's ask the question again. What does it look like to live in the light of King Jesus' now and coming kingdom? Are you ready for 12 attributes in 15 minutes and 13 seconds? Are you ready? Here we go. You're going to get a whole series in 15 minutes and seven seconds. All right, here we go. Here, here's, here it is. All at once, check out the alliteration. Just saying, look at all the leaves. But this is really good stuff, actually. 
So here it is. Here's how we bring the kingdom here and now. We do it by faith, through love, but how is really what I want to focus on. What is going to mark your life and what is going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Here is the things that I came up with that I feel like the Spirit gave to me. First and foremost, we bring the kingdom worshipfully. Worshipfully, or if I had a backup word to help bring more context, obediently. It's through this life surrendered to Jesus. Worship is much more than singing songs. In fact, you can sing praise songs and not be worshiping. Worship is about the spirit. It's about truth. It's about your heart. It's about a disposition of surrender and adoration to God. That's what worship is. And we bring the kingdom through worship. Did you know that obedience brings the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Obeying what God tells you to do and obeying what he tells you not to do actually establishes the kingdom. The kingdom comes through us offering our lives as an act of worship to God. In what way, you might ask? In every way. Romans 12, Paul says it like this. He says, offer your bodies, your whole self, all of you as a living sacrifice to God. Give your life as an act of worship to God holy and pleasing. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. So the things that you do in obedience and adoration of God bring the kingdom. The things that you don't in obedience and adoration and consecration to God bring the kingdom. This is how it works. We bring his governance through our action of affection and adoration. This is how the kingdom comes. Number two, we bring the kingdom theologically. I would love to preach on all of these, but I'm just going to do the flyover, and I want you to just get these in your mind. I think God wants to give us a vision of what it looks like today. Theologically, or let me say it like this, intellectually, it's about how we think. Did you know that Jesus is the most brilliant mind in the universe? He's the most brilliant mind in the universe. And the words that he taught are the, still the most brilliant teachings that have ever been recorded in human hi- history. And he calls, to us, calls us to establish his kingdom through the way we think. He actually invites us to have renewed minds. In fact, that same scripture I was just, just quoting to you, Romans 12, tells us not just to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, but to be transformed by changing the way we think. God actually wants us to change our minds. He doesn't just want to occupy our hearts. He wants to occupy our heads. He actually wants to change your perspective on things. He wants to train how you understand things. This is how the kingdom comes. It's through the reason of faith. Did you know that Christianity has the best logic in the marketplace of ideas? Have you actually done the work to go and look at different philosophies and different religions and contrast it to what we believe? Listen, in the marketplace of ideas, Christianity is far and away the best idea. So the kingdom actually comes through how we think. And let me just say this, even kind of prophetically or call our church this. We must go beyond superficial, easy, immature believism. We actually need to study the word Like, I've been thinking about this. There are things that I have spent hours learning that in the end don't matter at all. Like, they're they're pastimes, they're hobbies. Like, think about some of the things that you're almost an expert at. You're a Netflix expert, and yet you can't quote scripture. The Bible tells us we actually bring the kingdom by transforming the way we think that we actually change how we think, we study the word, we, we understand theology. Look, this isn't just for me to do. 
It's not just for me to give you the word. It's not just for me to spoon feed you. My job is to teach you how to cook. My job is to teach you how to eat and feed yourself. The kingdom comes intellectually. Number three, the kingdom comes mercifully or gracefully, not gracefully, but gracefully. Like we give grace, we dispense grace. The quintessential element of God's kingdom, of his nature, of his person is grace. God is a God of grace. Somebody should say amen. God is a God of grace and mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is how God held back the things that we, we, are, we deserved. And grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve. And God brought his kingdom to us through grace. And he calls us to bring the kingdom to earth through grace. That we're supposed to give as we have received. That we are, we're supposed to be grace dispensers, going all over the place, giving grace, giving mercy, giving kindness, giving money, giving help, giving time. We are called to be the most generous people on earth, period. Why? Because God is the most generous being in the universe, and we have a direct line of supply of his grace. He never runs dry, never runs out. The rivers of his mercy are new every single morning. And we bring the kingdom as we dispense grace, as we have freely received, we freely give. Amen. We're called to bring the kingdom mercifully, mercifully, gracefully. Number four, we bring it evangelically. I told you I'm flying. We're three quarters, two thirds there, or one third there, sorry. We got to pick it up. Evangelistically. We do it evangelistically, truthfully. What does evangelical mean? Now, I think for a lot of us, we, we associate it with a certain style of church. That's not what evangelical means. It comes from the Greek word evangelion, which means to tell. It means to herald, proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's what evangelical is. If we believe something is good news, we inevitably talk about it. And one of the ways the kingdom comes is by us talking about it. Who have you told about Jesus lately? Who have you told about Jesus lately? Have you been talking about sports? Have you been telling your friends about things you got going on? We talk about what we love. Who have you told about Jesus lately? The kingdom comes because we tell about it. We talk about it. We sing about it. We proclaim about it. We speak about it. We can't shut up about it. That's how the kingdom comes. God has designed the kingdom to be told, spoken, proclaimed. Number five, we bring the kingdom cheerfully, joyfully. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Yeah, you, some of you know it. Some of you need to tell your face that you got the joy down in your heart. Why on earth, how on earth did the church for so many people become associated with stuffy, dank, angry, callous living? We, let me say this. Who is the happiest person in the universe? It's God. God is the kindest, happiest, most full of joy being in the universe. And we know him. Like, I know him. Santa, the elf, anyway, sorry, too many movie references. We know God, we know Jesus, and we should have joy flowing through us, and God actually wants to bring his joy on earth through us. Do you know that heaven, in Revelation 21, what is the opposite of no tears? Joy! Unspeakable joy, unimaginable joy. It's going to permeate 
creation forever. And God doesn't want that just to be a someday reality. It's today. He wants unspeakable, unimaginable joy to permeate our lives, regardless of our circumstances. How many of you know you can still have joy going through hardship? Joy is different than happiness. God has given us joy. Celebration is our vocation. Number six, we do so peacefully. Oh my goodness, I'd love to preach more on all of these things. Non-anxiously. I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Yes, where? Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That the kingdom actually flows through peace. It's a kingdom of peace. We saw that in Isaiah 9, that of his kingdom and government there is no end. He will reign with justice and peace. Jesus is not only peaceful, but the the, the other way to understand that is he is the most non-anxious person in the universe. As you read the, the, the New Testament, the stories about him, I mean, he's sleeping in a storm. He isn't worried about it. Everyone's freaking out, anxiety through the roof. And Jesus says, why did you wake me? Let me go back to sleep. And then he tells the storm to stop. Jesus absorbs stress and brings peace. That's what he does. And the church is called to do that. Look, what a day, what a day for the church to rise up armed with peace. Man, revival might break out if we could just get anxiety licked in our own hearts. If we just believe this stuff enough to be true and let the Spirit take up residence enough in us to actually do away with the anxious thoughts in us that we could absorb the stress around us, like just imagine like what a mission field we have when anxiety is through the roof and we've got peace like a river all day long. It's incredible. In an age of war and anxiety, we can bring peace. How incredible. Number seven, we do so, we bring the kingdom dutifully dutifully or diligently. What do I mean by that? I mean through work. I mean through effort. I mean through skills. I mean through actually doing stuff. It's not just like like when you become a Christian, you sit on the sidelines. It actually engages you and brings meaning to everything you do. Did you know that work is a calling? Somebody say, well, I, I work at Shoppers Drug Mart. Yeah, to the glory of God. Everything we do matters, and the way we do it matters. Work is something that God has appointed and ordained. Did you know that work existed before sin came into the picture? Like Genesis 1.29, God says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That sounds like work. Sounds like good work, but it sounds like work. We're called to work. God has given us meaningful work, and God brings the kingdom through the simple acts of how we work. One of my favorite Christian thinkers right now, a guy named Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor. He was talking about work and he was talking in light of a carpenter. And he said, you know what? Christianity, what it demands of a carpenter, first and foremost, is that he makes good tables. Like the most important thing to a carpenter is that he makes good tables. Why? Because it reflects on Jesus. It reflects on God. He said the only Christian work is good work. We don't do a terrible job. Like if you are doing groceries, we do it to the glory of God, which means we should be the best darn grocery packers that ever existed. If you're a waiter or a waitress or uh, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, we should be the very best. Why? Because what we do is for the glory of God. Paul says, whatever you do, eat or drink, sweep the floor, clean a toilet. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. We should do it the very best. We do it through work. And, 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 and along with that, 
Are you with me still? I'm almost done. I told you I'm going to fly. This is the fastest 12-point sermon you ever saw. Number, number eight, we do it beautifully. We do it beautifully or artistically. I would love to talk more about this. Maybe I'll turn this into a series someday. But we are called to bring the kingdom through beauty. Can I just say the church must rediscover the God image in us in our creativity? That God is an artist, God is a maker, God is a creator, and he's called us in his image, he's created us in his image, and we actually bring his rule and reign through creativity, through artistry. And actually for centuries, the church has shaped minds and imaginations through art and architecture. Have you ever been to Europe? Like the church used to value beauty. And I believe we need to recapture that. We need to realize that God has called us to be creative. He's called us to ingenuity. He's called us to restoration. Not just that we create new things, but we get the awesome privilege of finding broken things and making them beautiful. We get to find broken parts of town and clean it up. We get to find broken families and bring life and restoration to them. We get to find broken works of art and repair them. We get to find broken down things and bring beauty and life to. I'd love to preach more about that, but we bring the kingdom through beauty. We also do it, I, I'm, I promise I'm not going to get off preaching here because I could, I could go. I could go on number nine. We bring the kingdom powerfully, supernaturally. Let me just say that God did not just intend for us to be on our own here, but he actually anoints us with his spirit to do good works. Oof! Miracles were not meant to be abnormal. Special, yes, but normal. Jesus said, you who follow me, my disciples, you will, that signs and wonders will follow you, that you will do even greater works than I did. He said, you're going to heal the sick. You're going to cleanse lepers. You're going to cast out demons. You'll even raise the dead. That is supposed to be everyday life for us. Why? Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. God has called us to bring his kingdom and his government through supernatural, mighty, wonder-working power. And we believe in miracles. Amen. We do. Not every time we pray. You know what? Sometimes we pray and we don't think anything happens. I think something always happens. But look, we have seen enough miracles in the last few years to know when we pray, anything can happen. When we pray, we've seen people conceive. When we've prayed, we've seen people healed. When we've prayed, we've seen chains break and addictions drop off. Like miracles happen. And here's something I know to be true. Miracles are unbelievable theology. And miracles are, are, are undoubtedly the most potent form of evangelism. And God has called us to move in power, to be empowered. So when was the last time you, you asked God to do something impossible, knowing that nothing is impossible for him? God has called us to establish his government through his power that he has actually given us. Did you see what Jesus said before the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go in that authority. That's all authority. There should be nothing that we feel is off limits because all authority has been given to Jesus. That, I, I, I just need to move on because I could preach there for the rest of the day. Number 10, we do so. We bring the kingdom communally, cooperatively. One of the primary ways we bring God's word and God's government and his rule and reign is through the unbelievable, diverse, 
multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic, multi-background, multi-way of life community known as the church. In fact, in our differences coming together in complementary, beautiful harmony, Jesus said that they'll know that we're his. Like John 13, he said, the world will know about me and about my kingdom and that you belong to me by the way you treat each other. That in our community, that we actually bring the kingdom through each other and that there are actual aspects of the kingdom that I can't experience unless I'm with you and vice versa. That God has designed his kingdom to come through the church, through the community, through your home church, through your location. He's designed the kingdom to come as we come together as the temple of God, as the body of Christ, as the army of the living God, as his family. That's how the kingdom comes. God gives his power to his community. Number 11, God's kingdom and his government is designed to come prophetically. And I want to put the word optimistically there. What do I mean by this? I mean... Two things. First and foremost, Christians should be the most optimistic people on planet Earth. Let me say it again. Say amen in the chat. Say amen at Halifax. Christians are, ought to be the most optimistic, not glass half full. We're cup overflowing. The optimistic people on planet Earth should belong to the Lamb. We know how the story ends. So we, our assumption is, I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's going to work out awesome. I know that in the end, I won't have any tears and it's going to be amazing. We should be optimistic. And so specifically, we speak and prophesy unto the possibility and promise of God. Like the Bible tells us in Romans 4 that, that God gives life to the dead and he calls things that are not as though they are. That we are invited to speak the word of God to speak life, to speak truth, to speak hope, and that God empowers our words. Do you know that life and death is in the tongue? That we have the opportunity to tear down strongholds by the way we speak, to build up new life by the way we speak? Our words actually establish God's kingdom. They're so potent and so powerful. So we speak life. We see life. We see people as pre-great when you see someone, he's not an addict. He's somebody that God's going to set free and change. Like, like, like we think of Pastor Adam's story. Like what if, what if the church just saw him as somebody who's hopelessly struggling with addiction and not somebody who's created in the image of God, who God has a hope and a future for, who's full of potential, and God didn't start speaking new life into him, and now he's speaking new life into hundreds and hundreds of people getting the same freedom that he got. That's what it means for the kingdom to come prophetically. We speak the life. We speak the word of God. Finally, it comes like this, sacrificially. It comes sacrificially, selflessly. We bring the kingdom the same way Jesus did. We do it the Jesus way. How did Jesus ultimately bring his kingdom? By laying his life down, didn't he? He, he gave himself, humbled himself, surrendered himself, and served us and we bring the kingdom when we do the same. Paul said it like this. Let me read this and I'll be done in a second. Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Sounds familiar. Sounds like someone we know. Oh, here it is. 
in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There was no limit to how far he would go for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice his exaltation and elevation came on the other side of his humbling and his serving and his sacrifice. And it's the same for us. God calls us to give of ourselves. Look, if you find yourself often following Jesus, like having to bear a cross, you're on the right track. Like he didn't say it would be easy. What on earth would cause us when we hear Jesus inviting us to take up our cross and follow him would make us think that that's gonna feel good? It looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like self-denial. It looks like putting others in front of yourself. But when we do that, the resurrection power comes in and God elevates us and others through his power and through his glory. This is the exact opposite of the way so many of us have interpreted Revelation. This is fully engaged, isn't it? This is fully engaging the world. God fully engaged the world. He didn't try to escape us. He didn't let us spin off into the oblivion. He didn't try to escape us. He didn't just kind of keep his nice little neat, tidy heaven to himself. What did he do? He left heaven in search of us. He paid the highest price on our behalf so that we could know him. And just the same, because he did that for us, we in his love go in his love and we offer ourselves for the sake of the world the same way he did. And as we do, his kingdom comes here and now, little by little, heart by heart, life by life, conversation by conversation, day by day, community by community, region by region, nation by nation, till the whole world knows that Jesus is Lord. That's the truth. Here, and here's how we're able to do it. We're able to live out the government of King Jesus faithfully because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. We know whose we are and we know how it ends. Here's a few questions I'm gonna ask you to reflect on this week. Three apocalyptic questions, three transparent questions, three illuminating questions. Have I misapplied how to live in the light of the second coming? Am I escaping, enslaving, or am I engaging this world with the gospel? Has the gospel caused me to withdraw, to withdraw, or to press in? Has it caused me to cut people off or invite people in? Has it caused me to hold people up or push people down? The way you live your life is gonna to speak to how you have received the gospel. Number two, what would it look like to start seeing Jesus's government expressed and expanded in your world, in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your community, in your region? I think he wants you to dream about it. Dream about it, dream about it. Get, keep your eye on the prize, start with the end in mind. Number three, 
in what areas, in the 12 attributes, in what areas do I need to prayerfully and obediently and intentionally engage? Do I need to be more obedient? Do I need to be more like intellectual? Do I need to study the word? Do I need to bring peace? Do I need to, you know, bring beauty? Whatever it is, do I need to be diligent? In what ways do I need to express the kingdom right now? What, what, what leaped out at you that God's saying, hey, I want you to step out in this way. I want you to consider that. Let me pray for us as we go this week and may we bring God's kingdom. May we be the continued answer to Jesus's prayer when he said, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven here and now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We say that it is true. Thank you that you died for us. You bore our sins. You engaged our dysfunction. You came while we were yet sinners and you died for us. And that you rose again in complete power and victory and all authority. And that you've given us that same spirit unto resurrection power. So Lord, I pray, I just call forth in King's Church, I call forth new levels of engagement with the gospel on earth as it is in heaven. New levels of engagement. Lord, save us from an escapist mentality. Save us from setting up our own little cult clubs. Save us from not caring about others. God, would your love compel us to reach out to others? Lord, we embrace the ministry of reconciliation, making our appeal to, on your behalf to everyone around us to come and be reconciled to God. Lord, we see everything we do as an opportunity to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you, Lord, that you will come again. And we thank you that we get to partner with you, that you haven't called us to wait on you. You called us to work with you. We thank you for this holy, beautiful calling. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said.